Let's all turn our Bibles to the book of Exodus. And we will be in Exodus chapter 7, continuing a series of studies through the first 19 chapters as we take a brief break from a longer series that's been ongoing through the Gospel of Matthew. To recap a little bit, there's been several key questions about God that have been addressed in this series. Where is God when he seems hidden or absent? That was week one. We saw that God was keeping his promises. He's working under our noses and right around us in sometimes ordinary ways by people we wouldn't expect, and he hears us when we pray, even when we don't get an immediate response. Where is God when he doesn't seem present? That's where he is, keeping his promises, hearing our prayers, and working in ways that you may not be looking for. Who is God? He is the God who needs no one or anything, but because of his grace and love, chooses and wants to work through human beings. That was last week. This week, are there other gods? And immediately, especially in the flow of all that you've heard throughout this service, that might seem like an easy question to answer. Let's just give the answer and close our Bibles and go home, have an early Sunday. Are there other gods? Well, of course not. We've sang, there is no other that's sure and steady. Jesus is better. We've said that he is the one true lion in the lamb, and the mighty hand that controls the sea is the God who cares for me. We've read about it in our scripture readings, Isaiah chapter 40. Who would you compare Yahweh to? There's no one that can compare to him. Or the reading that Stacy just read for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There is but one God. So no, there aren't any other gods. But it's not that easy. The question is actually answered with a bit of a yes and a no, and we alluded to this last week. Yes, there are no capital G, supreme creator gods. There's one, supreme, big G, God. That's what we've been celebrating throughout this service. But are there little g, lowercase, gods? And as we talked about last week, are there spiritual beings that exist that God is ruling over? And in that sense, that's the way the biblical authors use the lowercase g, gods, or Elohim in the Hebrew. Theos in the Greek in the New Testament is often sometimes referring to a plurality of sometimes real spiritual beings. Many of you would, I assume, believe that there are such things as angels or demons. You see that as we read through the New Testament, Jesus interacting with demons, and as I pointed out last week, Demons is just the word for demigod, lowercase g, lesser god. That's what the word demon means. So again, that's why it's a bit of a yes and a no. It's, I think, actually our language that trips us up a little bit, baggage that we have, why this question becomes so challenging. So I think the best way to think about it, as I alluded to last week, is there are all kinds of unseen spiritual beings. In the same way that you could think about cats as a whole category of creatures, there's only one supreme 
cat that rules all of the jungle. It's the lion. And the way the Bible talks is that there's one lion and there's no other rival lions that exist. He is the creator and all other spiritual beings try and present themselves as being a rival or as equal to, but they do not compare. They are far lesser, even if they are real spiritual beings, even if they do have power. All of this context will be extremely important and helpful for our text. If we read through the plagues in Exodus chapter 7 through the next several chapters, you're going to see a battle of the gods, a battle between the supreme, capital G God, and the lesser gods. And we want to see from this text, the story of Exodus is telling us who is the Lord and why you should know Him and believe Him and give your life to Him alone as supreme allegiance. If you actually turn to chapter 5 on page 48, you'll see the framework context for our text. Over on page 48, you'll see the first few verses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron, in verse 1 of chapter 5, said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? In all capital letters, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God, our Elohim, the one supreme, capital G, Elohim. There's one, and his name is Yahweh. And he has met with us, we know him, and you should obey him, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh responds not with, I don't believe that gods exist. He's not saying this from an atheistic perspective, he's saying this from a very pluralistic perspective. He knows that there's other gods, lowercase g. He has lots of them. He believes in many different powers, supreme powers in his mind. Many people thought he was one. So the question for us today that our text answers is, why should you obey? Why should you obey Yahweh and not these other lowercase g gods? And I'm going to give you four reasons about the character of Yahweh that we see in our text. And because our text is so long, they're not going to come from one particular area of the text. This is really a summary of reading through them. We'll read little bits and pieces here or there. Reason number one, why should you, like Pharaoh, obey and give allegiance to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites and the God that became flesh in Jesus? Reason number one, because he is the supreme judge. He judges those who do not obey. What happens in the next several stories in chapter 7, 8, and 9 is that Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does not obey. Look down at chapter 7, verse 4. God even predicts this. Pharaoh will not listen to you, 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Do not misunderstand that what is happening here is God is judging Pharaoh for his disobedience. Then look at verse 5. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Do you see how the plagues, as we get this introduction, is A, a judgment of the supreme judge for the disobedience of Pharaoh, and B, is answering the question in chapter 5, who is this Lord? Well, now you're going to know who he is. He is a judge, and he will judge you for your disobedience. Now, on the surface, like the superficial reading of the plagues would be, if you disobey God, so let's imagine you're weak this week. You do something you know that God has said you should not do, and then you start thinking, oh no, I heard Phil's sermon, God is the supreme judge, now I'm going to get like a broken leg tomorrow, or in a car accident, and oh, that's because of this. A lot of people want to look at the world that way. They want to talk about hurricanes in the Carolinas and say, well, that's because they sinned somehow. And I would want to warn you against thinking that you have somehow supreme knowledge to know when God is doing what. What we do know is that God judges sinners. And what we do know is that the fabric of the way that the world was made was to work in accordance with God's will and that this world is broken and it is messed up because of the way we have disobeyed Him. And not all sins need to be directly tied to a particular judgment, well, this happened because I did this. But broadly speaking, it is true that there is judgment on the earth. There is sin and suffering on this earth because of the way that we have rebelled against God. One of the interesting observations that would take a long time to explain, and because, again, there's a large text, I want to just give you the summary of it and help you see that the plagues seem to, as many theologians have pointed out, reverse the order that you find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Not necessarily the sequence of order, but the orderliness of Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew phrase is tohu vavohu. It rhymes a little bit. It means wild wasteland. There was not order. There was this chaotic waters, and the Spirit hovered over those waters. That's the first two verses of the Bible. But then out of that chaos and out of that wild wasteland, God brings order and creation. And so then you start seeing the language of creation, and when you read the plagues, there's several hints and clues in the Hebrew text that seem to suggest that from plague one to plague ten is a reverse of creation. It's a disorder. Sometimes people have even argued that they're just natural causes. I think that that's a bit too um, modern in terms of its reading. When you read these plagues, you'll notice that there's very much a supernatural uh, work going on. But do think for a moment. The first plague is water being turned into blood. The Nile River gets turned into blood. Then frogs happen. And so maybe it could be that frogs came out of the Nile River and were all over the ground because they couldn't exist in the water anymore. And then they ended up dying, not having anywhere to live and eat and drink and no source of life. 
that death then lead to all kinds of bugs. What happens when things decay? And what are the next two plagues? Two bug plagues. And so on and so forth. Some have suggested that it eventually gets down to darkness. The very final plagues of darkness covering over the sun and then the darkness of death when the firstborn son is killed. So could there be something like that in this text? I think that there is enough evidence as you detail all of the different parts of it that the plagues are teaching you more than just, well, if you disobey, then this. But rather, there is an overarching theme of when we disobey God, that in and of itself is bringing disorder and chaos in your heart and in your life. It is like your life was made to be full of life and, and joy, but yet your choice of disobeying God the way He has ordered it is bringing disorder. It is bringing decreation, if you want to put it that way. So, imagine yourself at the dentist. I recently had this happen to me, and the dentist always says the same thing. Phil, if you do a better job of flossing, you will have healthier teeth hygiene, you know, and your gums won't bleed as bad, and you won't get cavities. You go to the doctor, and you get a checkup, and they take your blood, and they say your cholesterol levels are too high, or you're getting close to pre-diabetic diabetes, and you need to stop eating this or that. When the doctor says to you these things, or the dentist tells you these things, do you say, well, how dare you? What is wrong with you telling me how I should live my life? Who does that? Nobody thinks that way when a doctor or a dentist gives you advice to help teach you that there's a way that this world works. And as I diagnose it, you're not living the way that that works, and it's leading to decay. It's leading to destruction in your life. Do you hear God this morning just trying to tell you how you should live your life, or God who's breathing out life to you? And telling you that if you want to sin, then he will oftentimes, as Romans 1 says, just give you over to that sin, and you can have all the consequences that come with it. In large part, I think that's one way in big picture to overview what is happening in the story of the plagues. The good news of Jesus is that as he comes onto the scene, his miracles are a reverse of this disorder and decreation. One of the reasons why we're studying the ten plagues right now in this sermon series is because the next section in Matthew's gospel that we're about to get into is a series of ten miracles, and all of these miracles show his ability to rule over the waters, to rule over creation and tell the winds and the waves, peace be still, to tell a blind man that his eyes can now work. Seeing the disorder and the chaos of the curse of sin on this world, Jesus enters into that world and he recreates. He makes new. His story is a story of new creation. And so one of the reasons we praise God is that he is the supreme judge who has made the world in such a way, but through the gospel of Jesus, he is remaking that world. So get in line with his ways. See how good they are. That's our first big observation point. Point two, why should you obey this God? Not just because he's a supreme judge, a judge who wants to give life, by the way, not just smite people all the time. 
but because he has supreme power. He is a supreme judge, point one. Point two, he has supreme power. If we trust in any other power, truth, spiritual being, we will get let down when we do so. When we make any lowercase g, God, ultimate or above, capital G, Yahweh, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ, Yahweh made flesh, that God, anytime this happens, we get let down because their gods, lesser deities, they pale in comparison to the power and the majesty of this one true God. So, for example, as we look at this story, let's look at some of these key texts, and let's think about it in this way. Pharaoh is asking the question, why should I worship your God, Yahweh? Who's that? I've got all kinds of gods to choose from. Why him? For example, they worship three different gods or goddesses in association with the Nile River. Kanum, the guardian of the Nile River. Happy, H-A-P-I, the spirit of the Nile River. And Osiris, they thought the Nile was this God's bloodstream. So then you turn to Exodus chapter 7, verse 14 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and he is going out of the water, to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. When God is doing these plagues, is he simply just trying to show his power? That he has supreme power? And he's more powerful than their gods. It's not just supreme power, believe in me. It's, it's polemical. It's undermining their beliefs. It's exposing their idols. It's showing that they have put their hopes in the wrong gods. It's more than just a display of supreme power, although it is that. It's that and more. Plague number two. Pharaoh and the Egyptians worship Heget, the frog god. It's a god that's got a shape of a frog. It's got a frog face. And they believe that this god could provide resurrection power. And so you turn to Exodus chapter 8, verses 8 through 11. And Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So that you will know that there is no one else, no one else besides the Lord God. That's what the plagues are pointing to and are about. 
What's interesting, though, is you'll notice if you read this text, there's several instances where Moses and Aaron do a display of power, and then there's these magicians and sorcerers, and there's these, I think one good interpretation of it is that there's these priests. So drop down to chapter 7, verse 22, and you'll see, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It's interesting to point this out because it seems like, initially, Pharaoh's not really impressed. He's not getting the message. And he's looking at his gods and his dark powers. And I, I, I don't think this is just magic tricks or illusions, per se. This is affirming that there is some sort of power, that there is a dark spiritual world out there, and they have tapped into that. I mean, they've got all kinds of gods, as you're going to hear throughout this message. One of them's probably got some sort of power. And so you're seeing them try these different acts, and sometimes they're successful, and other times you're going to notice they're not. The Egyptians worshipped Hathor, who was in the form of a cow. She was called a mother goddess. Or Apis, who was in the form of a bull and was a symbol of fertility. Or Minevis, who was a sacred bull. You could say Egypt had a lot of sacred cows, if you like. Corny puns. Exodus 9.4 The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Do you ever wonder why after the Ten Commandments are given, Aaron and the people worship a golden cow? Maybe it makes more sense now, doesn't it? Where did they get that idea from? Why did they have the image of God in the form of a cow? Well, because Egypt worshipped three different gods that were associated with cows. This is why I said, I think a week or two ago, that the issue is not so much for God to get the people of Israel out of Egypt physically. It's to get Egypt out of the hearts of the Israelites. Because as we'll see, even though they're delivered physically out of the land, they're delivered out of slavery and oppression, the worship of cows, the worship of God in the image or form of a cow is still near to their minds and on their hearts. This is made explicit in Joshua and in Ezekiel that while Israel was in the land of Egypt, they worshiped the Egyptian gods, little g gods. And as we see, one of these plagues is quite clear. Whatever god or goddess that they are worshiping, it does not compare with the glory and the majesty and the supremacy of Yahweh. Egypt worshiped Seth, the protector of the crops. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Look down and follow along as I read. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Then if you drop down to verse 24, then there was hail 
and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the garden of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This is one of the reasons when you keep reading that Israel is spared from the storm and everywhere else in Egypt is getting pummeled by the storm. That this is not just some natural occurrence. There is, if you would use the word supernatural, although I think sometimes that makes this big distinction between like, well, everyday things God is in working with all that's going on. And so I don't think we should make big distinctions, but hopefully you know what I mean by that. Sometimes it just rains. Sometimes it rains because God is bringing judgment and he's preserving a people from that judgment. So what happened to Seth? You almost got to wonder if, similar to the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal are trying to pray for their God to bring down fire, and Elijah's like, hey, hey, maybe your God's going to the bathroom or something because he's a little busy right now. You kind of get that sense throughout reading the plagues, don't you? Hey, where'd Seth go? The protector of the crops. Yeah, the crops aren't looking so hot, are they? They worshiped the sun god, Horus. And you read Exodus chapter 10, 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Sink that in for a moment. A darkness that could be sensed and felt or touched. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the heavens, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And lastly, the battle of the gods comes to its climactic moment, I think, when you look at Pharaoh himself. They worshipped Osiris, the giver of life, who was the specific god of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was known to the Egyptians as the son of Re, an incarnation of Amon Re. Call it a false counterfeit of the ultimate incarnation of Jesus. A king, a ruler over a nation who comes and embodies in human flesh both God and man. They thought of Pharaoh in these ways. Amon Re was, for most part, the king who was the king over all the other lesser gods that have been referenced to this point. And so, what do we have in Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 to 7? So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Even the cows, by the way, a little another jab to the cow gods. There shall be a great victory throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That you may know. How many times did I read that, by the way, in the last few minutes? 
Have you seen the repetition and the pattern so that you may know that I am the Lord? Because the question in chapter 5, when Pharaoh was first confronted, is who's Yahweh? Who's that? Well, you're going to know. You're going to know that he is the supreme power, the one capital G God, and all of your lesser deities pale in comparison. And at this point, as we hear all of this, it is very, very important for us to examine our own hearts. How often do you and I hear this story or the gods that other people worship in ancient times and think, yeah, they're, they're weird. They bow down to frog heads. And they think that the Nile River is the bloodstream of some god. Like, I don't have any problems with this at all. How many times is that what we really think? That, yeah, we believe in the one true God. That's what we've been singing all week. And I so pastorally want to press in on all of us now, hopefully in a loving way, in a life-giving way, for you to examine yourself and think, don't, don't we do the same thing? Do you really look and read the stories of the Bible and think, yeah, we're not, we're not like them at all? If that's the way you read really any Bible story, my friend, you are missing it. We are just like the Egyptians. We're just like the Israelites. We give supreme allegiance and power to lesser deities. We call them different names, but we have them nonetheless. Think for a minute, the god of mammon, or sometimes called the god of money. Do Americans in general, and maybe some of us in this room, struggle with temptations and allurements of the power of money. Money itself is just a thing. It's like the wooden idol that they're bowing down to. They don't think that the idol itself is the God. They think that the power behind it, what that thing can give them, and that's the benefit or blessing of it. That's why it's not so different from you and I. You can just keep thinking for a moment and examining all the different idols you know, the cow god that we referenced earlier in this story that the Egyptians worshipped, it was a goddess of beauty. Oh, we do not have that struggle, right? We do not bow down to beauty and youth and how somebody looks on the outward appearance. That has no power over whether somebody gets a job or doesn't get a job in our society, right? Somebody's beauty doesn't give them an advantage as a power. Do you see what I'm saying here? There's an unseen power from beauty. The thing itself, a human body, is just a thing, but behind it is an unseen power. It's a lesser G, God. And it has a gospel message of hope that it's preaching day in and day out in almost every single advertisement that you will ever see on the television. Choose this product, and you'll hang around these beautiful people. Consume this product. Keep pressing in, friends. Keep thinking about your own hearts. Allow me to keep pressing in. Do you know that one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, as you examine this, this Seth god who protects, and these other gods that some of them had mindsets of thinking that they would have longer health, 
We call it medicine, modern medicine, doctors. And we bow down to the doctors, and we bow down to the opinions of the people who have all the latest science and the latest trends of the most research, and we'll have longer lives and happier lives if we just do this, 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 and this. And you can put whatever that is. Some of you are going to be natural and holistic. Some of you are going to be, low. Oh, I'm all this. And we've got all kinds of different gods that we bow down to and think this is where we'll have life. And all of us in this room are going to die. Physically. And no amount of Pilates, no amount of eating a certain manner is going to change the factor that all of us will die. Now, at this point, many of you are feeling like that was a little too close to home, Pastor Phil. And if I am, I'm not saying that we should not take care of our bodies, and I'm not saying that there's not a good thing about all these things that we're pursuing in our lives. As Tim Keller has so eloquently said, it is when we make a good thing and turn it into a God thing that we have made an idol. I'm not saying that these things are bad things. Stop trying to pursue health in this life so that you can have the most amount of energy and fitness level and whatever else so that you can serve God with your body. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that too many times we're hearing the message from the world and the seductive power of that message that this is not just a good thing, this is a God thing. And we sacrifice more time, more energy, and more money bowing down and sacrificing ourselves for these little g-gods than we do the one true God. It's reflective in our prayer lives. It's reflective in our financial statements on our credit cards. It's reflective on our calendars by the way we prioritize all these other things that are good things. I've told you all several times throughout my time as this pastor, one of the good things I made a God thing early on in my life was sports. And the, the longer I'm living the Christian life, the more that I realize that's not just like a little, oh, Phil struggled with sports. Mm. I struggled with heroin addictions. Phil struggled with sports, you know? And sometimes it might feel like that, like, really? That was your struggle? Friends, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything can become a God thing. Anything can become the world for which you're living to have your, your, your justice and your satisfaction and your joy and your sense of worth and well-being. It doesn't matter what it is. How many people are more excited about church versus the Chicago Bears? How many people are going to raise their hands when touchdowns happen and bow down to the athletic prowess of our professional athletes? How many millions of dollars are being put into professional sports? Well, let's hit a little closer to home since we're doing that. How much is put into youth sports? Because we're not trying to make disciples for Christ in our home. We're trying to make D1 athletes in our home. Friends, are we any different than Egypt? We don't just have one supreme God. We have a plethora of gods that are gathering for our attention, and there's a power behind them. So please, don't ever read the Bible with your chest puffed out and look down on these people and say, oh, those primitive people who worship all those gods. I would never do such a thing. We do the same thing. We have different names, different expressions of that worship. But get to the core of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I will tell you, you will see yourself in the mirror. And what we found in this point is that when we should trust 
and put our allegiance in anything that is a little case G God, it will let us down. In the same way that the Egyptian little K, little lowercase g gods, where, where would they go? Will they stand when they stand before Yahweh toe-to-toe? How's that going to work for you? So that's reason number two. You should obey this God because he is the supreme judge. You should obey, obey this God, reason number two, because he is a supreme power. Reason number three. You should obey this God because he is the sovereign Lord. One of the things that you'll notice that this passage teaches is that there is a very difficult teaching in this Bible that is narrated, that has boggled all of your minds and my mind and everyone else, and it's, why should we even obey him? Because if he's sovereign over everything, well, then he's just going to determine what I'm going to choose anyway. Think about the confrontation with Pharaoh. Go back to chapter 7. Notice the way that it is predicted in verse 4 of chapter 7, and this is not the first prediction, but it's one example of it. Chapter 7, verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. How does he know that? Drop down to verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. And then notice the little phrase at the end, as the Lord had said. He knew. He knew Pharaoh wouldn't listen. Even though there was a nice display of superior power when they took the rod that they had in their hands and they threw it down on the ground and it became a snake, and they're like, whoa. And then these little magician guys, these, these priests of the other lesser deities, they do the same thing, and they've got snakes. But then... As you read the story, Aaron and Moses' snake, it's like big cobra. He like eats all their snakes up. It's like, yes, that's the supreme God over the serpent. But Har- Pharaoh's heart stayed hard. And as you keep reading through the text, you're going to notice this back and forth where there's times it's going to say that har- Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Look over in chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, did that happen because Pharaoh hardened his heart or because God hardened his heart? Answer, yes, right? That's the way the story reads. Keep reading. Look over in chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And you could read several other examples, but hopefully you see the point. You see an instance of Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Those seem like contradictory things, like how can both of those be true? And I don't have a solution other than to tell you that they're both true. Even our own statement of faith as a church reads in such a manner to say that the responsibility of human beings to make choices is a legitimate thing. You are to obey God. You are to repent and believe. And it is not because you're this little puppet and, well, I I can't make a choice. Why even choose anything? Why tell anybody about Jesus? God's already determined who's going to be saved or not saved. 
that mindset is not what we're affirming as a church in our own statement of faith and teaching, nor should we read here in this text. The teaching of the Bible is that it is both true that God is hardening people's hearts and man is hardening their hearts, and that those do not need to be at odds with one another. They can just coexist. If you need some sort of illustrative picture, one way to think about it is like this. When the Bible is talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart because of Pharaoh, it is as if we're zooming in and we're looking right in on the ground street level view of what's happening right as it's happening. So imagine you're using Google Maps and you pinch in and you zoom in and then you get to where you're on the street level view and you're not seeing above it, right? If you've ever done that before. A satellite image versus the picture on the ground image. The picture on the ground is that Pharaoh hardened his heart, period. There's a way to just look at it from that angle and say that's what happened and that's true and that's right and we should affirm it and we should then demand that everyone everywhere repent and believe and make a choice to obey God. Zoom out. And you'd see things from a different angle, right? When you zoom the picture out and you're at the satellite view, you're like, whoa, this is actually a bigger picture than what I thought. Now, is it a different picture? No, it's not a different picture. It's just from a different angle, from a different height that I couldn't have seen. So we zoom out and we see, well, actually, part of why that happened is because God pharaohed, hardened Pharaoh's heart. That doesn't explain everything, but it gives you a picture, at least, of how this works. When the Bible's talking, it sometimes zooms in and sometimes it zooms out. Sometimes you're at 30,000 feet up in the heavens and sometimes you're right down in the nitty-gritty details of everyday lives. So why should you obey this God? Well, because your choices matter. They do have consequences. This shouldn't be a difficult point to believe. All of you live as if this is true. It's just it's hard sometimes when you read in the Bible that there's these texts that say God hardens people's hearts. But might I suggest that instead of that just being a confusing point, it is actually a hope-giving point that there is not one square inch on the planet Earth that God is not supreme and sovereign over, including your own human heart? If he wasn't, do you think you'd be here today? For most of you in this room, do you think you'd be here if God was not sovereign and he was just waiting for you to finally get your act together? If he did not intervene on your heart by the power of the Spirit, do you think you'd be here today singing praise and worship songs and listening to sermons? Oftentimes sermons that go too long and keep coming back for more of them? I mean, why do you do that? Because your heart's been changed. Did you change your heart? Well, kind of. I made some decisions. I chose. Did God change your heart? Absolutely. So we affirm both of these things, and the sense that God is supreme over the human heart should give you great joy and leap with hope. Because what if you have somebody in your life that you're like, their heart is too hard? Can you think of anyone right now where you think they're, they're gone? They're too far gone, and they are a hopeless cause. Well, maybe on the street level view, but maybe you should zoom back and see the supreme God who rules over everyone, including hard hearts. And read Ezekiel 
chapter 36, and I will put my spirit in them. I will remove their heart of stone, and I will put in a heart of flesh. Read Acts chapter 2 and the coming down of the Spirit who then dwells believers. And no longer will anybody need to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me. They will all have the Spirit of God within me. Read Titus chapter 3 and read about how the gospel hope is that God will regenerate, recreate, renew the heart inside of someone's life by the preaching of the gospel. And have fresh hope today. It's not about them. It's not ultimately about you as the final cause, but God is supreme as sovereign Lord. Lastly, point number four. Why should you obey Yahweh and know that He is the one true God above all the other lowercase g gods? He's judge. He has supreme power. He is the sovereign Lord, and ultimately it is because He is the Savior. How did this story end in the Exodus story? Well, if you drop your eyes over to chapter 11 and 12 and 13, you'll notice that the final plague is threatened, that the Lord will kill every firstborn of Pharaoh. And as I read that earlier, you notice that Pharaoh hardened his heart. God Hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go, even though God said that this would happen. And then we get instructions for the Passover, and then ultimately we get the actual 10th plague in chapter 12. Follow along as I read in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Let that sink in. In every house, death. Death both in the Israelite houses and the Egyptian houses. But in the Israelite houses, the death was of a lamb. A Passover lamb. In the death of the Egyptians, it was the death of a son. And as Andrew Wilson and Alistair Roberts have recently said in their book on echoes of Exodus throughout the Bible, when you fast forward to the New Testament, you see that there was death on a cross. And it was not a choice between a lamb or a son, God chose both. The lamb who was the son. If you don't think that the Bible is preaching Jesus in the Old Testament, then it's because you've not read the New Testament. The New Testament authors point back to this event again and again in various ways. Do you know the story of Jesus in the transfiguration? It's in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 29, and you can see that Jesus goes up to a high mountain and is figure is transfigured, and he's with Moses and Elijah, and he starts talking to them, and he uses the language about his exodus when he would die on a cross. In other words, right there in the lips of Jesus, you have him talking about his exodus, his departure, and his departure being not just a departure from the land of Egypt, but his departure from the land of this whole earth, where he would ascend to heaven above all powers and authorities and rulers 
seated at the right hand of God. Many of you know that I've been doing ascension studies in some of my doctoral work. And what I've noticed recently is so many of the New Testament texts about Jesus' ascension are showing his reign and rule, not just over all of the rulers on the earth, but all powers and dominions, meaning unseen realm of spiritual powers, all other lesser G gods, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 3, all of them are in the context of his rule and reign over the powers that are over the face of the earth. Jesus is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5 says explicitly. The Savior who saved Israel from all of the plagues and ultimately out of Egypt is the Savior who we know as Jesus Christ, the supreme judge who will come to judge the living and the dead, the sovereign Lord who knows all that's going on, who has supreme power over all the powers, and the ultimate Savior. Why, why is it that we don't trust and obey and put our allegiance and our hope in Jesus? Do you know why? Is it like going to the dentist and being told, you know, if you floss your teeth? Is that what it sounds like right now? Going to church? Just another reminder from the dentist? Or a checkup? You know, what you need to do is you need to start working harder at these things and then you're going to get these results. I think it's because so many of us do not believe in the power that he already has given us by pouring out his spirit. You don't believe in the grace that is given to you every time that you do fail. You have not been captured and enamored and arrested by this grace. If you were to put it in a sentence, it's just our unbelief. So behold him. Or as John the Baptist would say in the early chapter of John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the Lamb who was slain. As we sang earlier, we have celebrated in this service that Yahweh is the Lion but he is also the lamb. I pray our hearts would be softened by this news today. The reminder, yet again, that it is not up to us, ultimately. It is because of Christ, because of his spirit, because of his promises, because of his sovereign work. Thank you for these wonderful teachings and the seeds that were planted all the way back in Exodus that fully come to full bloom when we get to Jesus in the New Testament. We want to pray now that as we behold the Lamb, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would soften our hearts and remind us yet again that part of what makes Him our Savior, our supreme ruler and King, so unique is that the Creator became decreated Himself. The one who brought order let chaos onto his own life. The God who judges brought judgment on himself. 
Help us to see that as we take the bread and the cup and not go through ritualistic routines. But help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.